Step into the Wealth Elevator and join our 12,000 plus member community who have passively invested over $200 million to acquire over $2.1 billion in commercial real estate. Sign up by going to thewealthelevator.com slash club. And here we go. Welcome to the Wealth Elevator. This is Christmas week. Hope everybody's not working too hard. You've probably been hearing all the news out there that the interest rates are all ready to plummet. Remember, those are just the things that the mortgage brokers and the real estate agents are saying to spin stories to get you to buy again or the news sources to get you to click. Now, let's think about this for a second. Even if the Fed goes full speed and drops rates by half of a percent at each meeting, it'll take us well over a year to see any major changes under 4%. And again, that is if they bump it down half a percent every single time, which is not going to happen. It's going to be more like a quarter point. And then it'll be more like two years for us to even feel anything. And then add on top of that, the cap rates, which are contingent on interest rates, aren't going to be coming down anytime soon thereafter. It might be a quarter. It might be three or four quarters. I don't know. So what you're seeing from us from a deal perspective is I'm not one of these saying, now is the time to go in and get all the distress. I'm actually looking elsewhere. I've been joining other venture groups, private equity groups. And in our real estate side, I've been focusing more on defensive strategies. So if you guys are interested in seeing a little bit more about that, make sure you guys are part of our group by joining up at thewealthelevator.com slash club. We're going to be releasing a survey here shortly. And I want to see what you guys are looking to invest in. Are you guys one of these young up and coming folks out there who want to go after and take the risk and all the reward and go after distress in the market. I personally think cap rates may jump up another quarter point to half a percent, meaning prices may come down another five, ten percent from where we are at now. But let's do the survey. Let's see what it is. And if you guys complete the survey, I will definitely send you guys the results. And let's see, do we want to go after it or do we want to play it more defensive as a group? I know what I'm going to be doing, which is more on the defensive side, but let's see what the hooey says out there. And if you guys are coming to Las Vegas, let's definitely have that conversation one-to-one about that, what you guys are looking for. There's still time to join. The invites started to go out this past week. People are starting to sign up. TheWealthElevator.com slash Vegas to get more information. That is January 12th to the 13th. See you guys there. And now we're going to be listening to a recording of the 2023 quarter three report. And it is also followed by an office hours that we did last month in November where we had investors ask other questions. So enjoy the show. This is the third quarter market update. I think people get lost in kind of the day-to-day and bigger picture ideas of what's happening out there in the investment markets. I'll start off with this forward-looking statement. You guys can read the rest in your own free time, but we're going to go ahead and get started here. So we'll start off with a little bit of review for some folks. We have some new investors coming in all the time. And if you're new to this, commercial real estate has been seeing a pretty big impact from a lot of unprecedented increases in interest rates that stemmed back from, let's call it summer 2022, because that's when I definitely can recall a little bit more sleepless nights starting from that point on. As of a quarter or two ago, it probably passed over this threshold of of official black swan event, which if you're not familiar with the term black swan events, these normally you have white swans, but every so often you have a black unusual swan out there. 
And we haven't seen these interest rates peak up to this level in like the last 40 years. And I think officially it's the quickest increase in history. For some of you guys who got the uh, investor uh, email update, you guys have a lot of these extra links that are highlighted here in that email. So a lot more other information for you guys to click on and, and peruse on your own. You know, what this has done has dropped the commercial real estate market. I want to say at least 20% across the board. And you're probably not hearing about this because nobody likes to be super negative. But yeah, it's happened, folks. And the reasoning behind that is prices are dictated by buyers and sellers. So in this case, the buyer activity dropped off a cliff. In a way, we are buyers too, right? And you haven't seen us really buy anything after last summer of 2022. Why? Because even though prices came down, it requires me to have a lot more down payment equity to the table because the loan to values are a lot more lower. Used to be we could get 70% loan to value loans. Now it's like 50, 55%. Even with this discount, it's just a penciling. And, and again, this is why we haven't been buying deals. So that in a microcosm is why the buyer activity has dropped. And of course, prices have also dropped too. Here's a little chart of where the cap rates have been changing. And of course, all markets are a little bit different. But for the most part, this you, you can't hide from this. This is a national uh, phenomenon that's happening. And then, of course, the 10-year treasury, which is the borrowing rate, goes up, which the Fed has pushed things to about five and a half here. We're thinking we're at the top. We'll get into more of that a little bit later. But this is just a mashup. And pay no attention to this intersection point that really is has nothing really to do with anything, I think. But it's just in, in relation, you're having the two kind of combined where it's just, again, why you're not seeing the buyer activity and prices go down. We talk about Chantham Financial, who's one of the big insurance companies who will sell rate caps. So these are the guys who get paid millions and millions of dollars to predict the future in terms of interest rates. And they've gotten it wrong many times. This is what we call, if you've heard of the term, the forward-looking curve. You, know, you can look back at December 2021. At that point, the experts, or if you want to call them kind of the Vegas odds, if you will, they didn't predict any of these interest rates, but as the interest rates started to come, June of 2022, then the forward-looking curves brought that into play, but no one really predicted it getting to this point. Most professional investors out there, the institutions, they always account for some level of conservativeness. We account for it too. I think we are definitely maybe double the amount of conservativeness, but at some point it breaks your models, right? When it goes well beyond that maybe two or three sigma past what you originally thought was possible. For some of you people who are a little bit more numbers-based, this will make a lot of sense. This equation up here, market price divided by the net operating income divided prevailing app rate. This is the magical equation that figures out what the price of the property is evaluated at. So you take the net operating income, that's NOI, which is essentially your income minus expenses, right? So that's how, how much money you're making, not including any of your debt service. So some of you guys who are business owners, it's very similar to EBITDA. So you take that number, and this is a number that you have control over. And this is the, the number that we like to increase, right? Typically 10, 20% as a business plan. But what is outside of anybody's control is what that denominator is in this equation, which is the prevailing cap rate. So the prevailing cap rate is very important. 
And here are some examples of before and after. So here on the right side, initially, markets, they range, right, on different asset classes and different classes of properties it ranges. But I just wanted to use something in relation to each other to show everybody as a, just a working example, just using a four cap, which is a 0.04 in the denominator there. So you have a property that, um, a pretty big property that has a net operating income of $4 million. So $4 million divided by 0.04, that's how you get to a $100 million market price. Now, what we've seen transpire through this whole black swan event is cap rates might've jumped up from a four cap to a six cap. So assuming the net operating income stayed the same, in a 4 million divided by 0 0.06, you're seeing a market price of 67, which is a loss of almost uh, two thirds of the price. So in the beginning, you're happy. Then you're sad for the last decade or almost yeah, a decade and a half, we've seen these prevailing cap rates go down, the opposite of what we're seeing. Now, obviously, we all believe that this is temporary. However, we don't know when the cap rates are going to come back to earth, back to 5%. Some people say, hey, you guys are in the value-add business and, and not us, everybody out there. Can't you get yourself out of this quicksand? So we changed a couple numbers here. Assuming that you did 100% of your business plan, you bump your net operating income from $4 million to $4.8 million. At that six cap, you're still at $80 million, which is below what you bought the property at. So this is, again, where I think you've seen a trend from us move from larger value-add plays, namely developments, because especially on Black Swan events where you see cap rates move so drastically in a short period of time, 20, 30% bump in NOI is, may not be adequate to stay above water. And it, it is a situation where it is a bit unprecedented. Of course, in most times, real estate typically goes up in price. I would probably say the vast majority of people out there have been in this type of arrangement where we've been rewarded by investing in real estate, where you've seen the cap rates go down and you're realizing this market appreciation effect as opposed to getting beat on the other end of the stick that's happening here in this temporary impact of this interest rates. Here's another example just shown on a different view. But again, same two guys here before and after. So here on the right side, you got the original purchase, sample purchase price of $100 million. You're coming in 70% loan to values is what was pretty common before the world change. So you got your $70 million senior loan from a bank or a debt fund, and the $30 million is coming from investors as the down payment there. Um, but after, now you're seeing a readjustment on the prices. And just to use a, a general 75 cents on the dollar, now your value has been readjusted down to 75%. But that's just one thing. The second thing that hurts you is that new loan to values are not 70% anymore you need 50% loan to value. So half of $75 million or $38 million the equity needed to refinance if you're in floating rate debt or your loan renewals are coming up for due. If that was your before and this is your after and you need to refinance and now you're seeing the need, you're going to need to come to the table with what's called a cash in refinance, which is, you remember that cash out refinance when you got to pull out a lot of equity tax-free and you, look, you all look like genius because the market rewards you. This is the opposite of it, right? And ideally, you want to be in deals where you have fixed rate debt and you're not playing this kind of time game 
forced to refinance in a difficult situation like this, where you do have to come in for a cash and refinance. That's just, that's the current state of the market. What's nice about real estate when you do go in with fixed rate debt is we've have in still the majority of the projects, you're not playing the game with a ticking timer where you're forced to refinance and put in this big chunk of cash if things go south in terms of the market. You just don't look at your evaluations and you just just wait for things to bounce back like how it normally does. That's the big elephant in the room. Cap rates readjusting due to interest rates. So these are some other things that other headwinds. And we've talked about this in the past. And a lot of this is the same story that's been happening post-pandemic. Expenses has increased because general inflation was double digits. So you're going to expect vendor invoices, insurance taxes to go way sky high. So that eats into cash flow. Number two and three, especially like insurance, we've seen that double, triple in some cases. Before this all happened, we dropped a couple properties in the Gulf where I don't know exactly how much the insurance increased. Maybe it was went up four or five X there, but that is a huge part of your P&L on a month to month basis. And then taxes really went up in certain municipalities. It went up a lot generally, but someone as high as 3X there in Harris County, which is Houston MSA, which is why we prefer to be more on the outskirts if we are going to be in a major metropolitan like Houston, be out in Conroe. The taxes in Alabama, we haven't seen it go up, but it's not nothing to the magnitude of what we see in the 3X. And then the other headwind that we're seeing, definitely seeing a little softness in rents. I think the the, the news sources are definitely over-dramatizing this slightly. They compare it to what was happening in 21 and 2022 when rents were just were on fire back then. So this is caused by a couple of things. And I don't know which is bigger or, or less. Either way, it's what's the reality, which is the uh, surge of apartment construction in 2020 and 2021. Um, has brought a lot of A-class inventory online, pushing downward pressure on the class B and C. Now, this is probably temporarily because now none of the builders are building because it's just very difficult to get your project started. So unfortunately, you're going to have to wait for the two-year time cycle to surpass. Because if you're thinking, all right, June 2022 was the point where interest rates start to go up. Now, if you're a developer, you make it happen, you push it through. But perhaps you know, maybe there was a tipping point January of 23 where developers weren't able to really push through and you saw that the new housing starts go down. Now, that is exactly the case that's happened, especially when you look at like the new housing starts today. However, you still have this backlog inventory still being worked on and still coming to market. And if you're assuming that January 2023 was the end, you're probably going to start to maybe see the tail end of that come through two years later. So that'd be January 2025 to you get relief off of this new supply. Still in the long run, you're fine, right? And I think this is why the original thesis of investing in residential housing still works in the five, 10 year cycle because growing population, people need a place to live, especially the lower income, the lower path of the population. Part of the evidence that supports this thesis is that in markets where there was no new supply, 
the class B still performed pretty well in terms of occupancy and, and rents. Obviously, the new inventory definitely impacts a lot. There. So some markets are a little bit more institutional, so you're going to have a little bit more big projects being created, such as a Phoenix or other smaller markets. You don't really have that institutions come in and build a 400-unit apartment complex times 12. But you can see some numbers there from RealPage depicting what's happening. Of course, this is all generalities, right? Different geographic areas. But for the most part, the story is pretty consistent across the countries. So what's happening? What can we look for now in the, in the future? So the Fed aims to raise rates to lower inflation and avoid harsh recessions. Basically, they're trying to keep the inflation in check without while well, hedging the downside with so they don't have harsh recessions where a vast amount of people get laid off. They want to keep things somewhat moderate. And they increase interest rates as their primary lever to impact this outcome. Unfortunately, high rates affect banks and really impact real estate investors such as us. And fixed rate debt, I think that's if you're in that sort of a minor issue right now, the thinking there on those projects is just lay low, delay selling or refinancing as best you can. And just not at the time to be going to market because like I said in the earlier slide, cap rates are just not where you want it to be to go to market. And then number four, your floating rate debt. A lot of these have proved to be in a very ticking time bomb. And we see it on our side amongst a lot of colleagues out there that a lot of people are just holding on. And what I would urge investors is if you're in a capital call situation, really ask the question, hey, what's the plan here? I definitely see some people without really a plan to get to survive to 2025. But from a, a long standpoint here, the, I like ITR economics. They've got this visual here of either soft landing or hard, hard landing. All industries are a bit cyclical which is why you see the sign curve here. Right now, you're seeing housing and the financial industries lead the charge and definitely went through this hard landing cycle. We see a lot of signs of uh, improvements and coming out of it. And maybe the most visual thing for most investors is that you see the peak of interest rates coming out. Last week, Fed just said that they're holding where they are. A lot of people uh, assume that was going to happen. They may have maybe another rate increase. So waiting to see what the data is, but most experts say that that is pretty much about the top. That said, we don't know, but I think we can somewhat confidently assume that somewhere in 2020, you're going to start to see a backtrack on interest rates. Now, if you want my crystal ball, I do think maybe a year from now, you do see inflation come back and you'll see interest rates settle out at a normal 4 percent long term. You never know what happens, right? Wars and current events happen as we've seen with the pandemic. But what I do know, and ITR kind of confirms this, is I'll see all these other sectors, right? Which is essentially people's 401ks, traditional investments. They haven't gone down on that roller coaster, right? Yet. So take for what that is. I personally don't have any paper assets. I've rolled this housing down myself. Obviously, I've been personally impacted myself, but I think everybody needs to make your own investment decisions. And we use tools like this and sources that are unbiased 
and definitely a lot more analytical than your average YouTuber out there saying the world is going to end. That's, this is what one opinion out there, and I would probably agree thinking it the same thing, at least speaking from, I'm in a lot of business mastermind and people who have no normal businesses, non-real estate, non-housing, non-financial, they're all talking about the same thing. They're saying that they see less and less orders, maybe on the magnitude of 10, 20% less. And right now it's the head scratcher of, do they lay off staff, which is going to increase unemployment. Some have already started to do that. And I think yeah, this pretty this picture pretty much hits it right on the head, I think. As far as going back into real estate, a lot of bad news has come out in the markets. Again, you guys have the links in, of this. If you guys are on the investor list, we sent this out via email. So all you guys should have these types of things. I think there's some of these sources, I don't really believe 100% because sometimes I know the inside stories on this. But I think it does a good job in terms of educating people. What I've gone over the first few slides on the, it has to bring a sort of basic level investor up to speed and then give them the news, the dramatized news on it. So if you're still new to it, I think there would be worth some value to going through the articles and hearing it a different viewpoint, but just take it all with a grain of salt, right? These, some of these articles are definitely a little bit rogue articles or news sources. It's something that large institutional firms are quietly under the surface impacted. Some I see that will not make it through this whole cycle. And I think it just stresses the whole outlook of, hey guys, you have to diversify over four, five, six, seven plus years of deals. And I think unfortunately it hurts retail investors because the retail investors what they'll normally do is they'll go into a few deals all in the same year. And when something like this, they get knocked out and they go back to the 401k. And unfortunately, they may be somebody who just rides the other roller coaster down to the bottom again. Hopefully that doesn't happen to you. That's where true investors have been doing this for a while. Understand that don't get caught up in these market cycles. Invest in stuff that makes sense. Things that'll be around for five, 10 years plus. Every quarter I go through this and I actually have, I've been, this is more of an exercise for myself where I've tracked the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats quarter after quarter. Just like me, I like to see myself as a student in the game, right? Like I'm a little bit too much into this and sometimes I lose sight of the forest from the tree. I, I wanted to see how do the strengths change on the economy or the investing world quarter after quarter. So I cannot just get super excited when one headline hits and I can just take it all with a grain of salt and look for the big themes that are emerging. And if I learn anything, these trends, they take a long time to solidify. And if you have the experience, and this is where I've tried to get a little bit more uh, formal on how I track this stuff, you'd probably be a better investor on in the future. But yeah, as far as strengths goes, unemployment is still very low. The economy is on fire, folks. GDP is up 4.9%, up from 2% last year, which is like the opposite of what you've been thinking, which is very unusual. And maybe in years, I'll see the same trend happen and I'll see what happened in the past in 2023, 24, and I'll know what's going to happen. And that's why I track this type of stuff. But the big thing, at least from our concern, is household formation is expected to increase as Gen Z moves out of their parents' house and enters the workforce. And people can't afford 
houses to buy right now. On the other side of that, the weaknesses that we talked about in the real estate world, insurance, taxes, all pretty high right now and general inflation and expenses are high. I think the, another weakness to point out is that average American savings is being lowered month after month and student debt is coming due. People are starting to have to start to pay that. I don't know how impactful these are in the whole grand scheme of things, but I notated it here. As far as opportunities, these are the things that tend not to change from my point of view because I try to be more of a long-term investor. And those are like home ownership at a 53-year low, millennials preferring to rent. No one can afford to buy a house with a 7 to 9% home loan. The high demand for multifamily housing, less for single-family homes, because generally the younger demographics, I would probably say this is true for myself, I would rather have a smaller square footage house or apartment that's newer than to have a bigger one that's older, right? More quality over quantity. So this is why we are pushing more towards the newer workforce housing builds ourselves. One opportunity, and, and this may seem negative, but like people are stuck in their homes. If you bought a house and you put a 3% mortgage on there, you're less inclined to leave. This is creating low inventory for people to transition into home ownership. Again, puts more demand on people renting, and that's where we would like to position ourselves in this long-term trend. As I mentioned earlier, the builder slowdown in 2022 Q3, once the interest rates started to go up in the year, and right now is less competition, right? This is a good time to be building. Two years later in 2025 is when we'll see that much decreased level of new housing, which is again, why you want to get out there and start building. Number five, government spending to offer relief. So there's two overseas wars out there. And I think it, it takes a lot of people's attention. But normally what happens in these circumstances is some bill is going to be get created or a couple of bills. And the majority of the money will likely go to Ukraine or the Middle East. But there'll always be a lot of money snuck in there on other agendas. And you have to just be looking at what those agendas are, because in times past, it's helped investors like us to see where that's going. So something that we're looking at, we're always looking at. And 2024, what's going to happen, right? I think what we're seeing now is the suburban 80s, 1980s properties. We like those better than the 1960s, 70s. Now, I'm not saying we're buying, going to go out buy properties yet. I don't think that the numbers work. We need the interest rates to come down so that our debt product makes sense and the deal can pencil. But the, I think we're definitely seeing, at least across the portfolio, is like when you get into these really old properties, 1960s, 1970s, you have a lot of wear and tear that kind of pops up. And it's something that it's going to happen. So I think the trend, if we do multifamily value add in the future, we would probably stick to 80s, 1980s properties or so. We, there are some opportunities of lower property tax bills. There are some laws going through Texas, for example, that are lower the property taxes a little bit. And then we're also seeing maybe possible insurance premium softening as things have quite surged in the last year. That said, we're less confident that because we do see that as more of an overall long-term trend of that one. Of course, we always want to identify some of the outside threats. The thing is, you never know what if it's a threat or if it's a real something that's a black swan that happens a very small minority of the time. 
but $2 trillion of multifamily and storage loan maturities in three years are coming due and $130 of bridge loans maturing in 2020, 2022 acquisitions. And then a lot of non-traded REITs facing redemption pressures. They got to sell, right? So they're going to be trading hands. Now, I think a lot of people show these statistics and it's often to throw doom and gloom out there. But these types of statistics are always there for the grabbing. So if you're a really bad English major, just grab the whatever the statistic is on that moment in time. In reality, a lot of times it becomes more of a restructure, especially if you're in times like today, that you're not going to see all $2 trillion of multifamily go and default foreclose. Essentially, a lot of the situation is created, as you've seen in the two examples we showed, the bank is severely underwater in those examples where they are incentivized to work with the current owners to come to some type of agreement and to avoid a foreclosure. So you're having what we call in the industry called extend and pretend where the bank, yeah, you probably take the loan back and take the property back, but they don't want to do it because they're not operators of real estate. And especially if you're in a tricky value add deal, they don't want to deal with that headache, but also by taking it back, they already lose several million dollars in terms of where they're going to take a discount on their note. So from that perspective, you can see where the bank is in a pickle and it just may be easier to just extend the loan or work out some kind of restructure there. Number three here, the threats. So when will the asset prices find the bottom? When will buyers and sellers reach equilibrium? At this point, we don't know. Will we see the tidal wave of properties who are in this situation come due and hit the streets? Or will it be extended and pretended majority? Or will the Fed drop the rates in the, in the sake of time, right? We don't know. We do know long-term, like I said, the opportunities. And we also do know that if you're an investor who sees the opportunity and now, you're the one who gets that bounce. But if you're that investor who yeah, I would say is a typical investor out there who waits until all signs of green which would be, call it 2025, 26, you've missed potentially one of the greatest investment opportunities of your lifetime. So the other threat here is like Middle East war. We just blow that down because that's something on the radar. But luckily, we're not worried about any like nuclear blast from Kim Jong-un as we were a few years ago. But let's just throw that in there just as a joke. But also as these threats, you, sometimes you don't see it. A lot of times you don't see it come to fruition. I put down this list of, I think all more than ever people are, there's a state of uncertainty. What do I do? Here's some things to consider. Don't buy into fear-driven pessimism in real estate or investing in general. Some of the biggest fear mongers are like the Twitter land, like a zero hedge website and the comment thread on YouTube videos. If you read those, man, I think your brain will probably rot doing that stuff. But I I think you just want to have a neutral mindset and a pure group. Unfortunately, when you go into certain places, what you're going to get. And if you can keep yourself, at least with your external sources, which if you don't, if you're not in the mastermind group, you likely don't have much of a peer group. So your external sources are media outlets. So if that's you, then at least consciously take things with a grain of salt. Know that you're reading more of a negative news source who's fear mongering, trying to get people's attention. And consciously try and get yourself to neutral so you can try to make the best decision. Because on the other side of the coin here, folks, like right now is like the time when, you know, and as the quote here, 
embrace the future is not when fear is high, but for a while, a 5% treasury bill may seem like a comfort today. And, and it is, but in decades to come, you look back at this moment in 2023 and see what you could have started and what you could have created at this point by buying up assets at a big discount already. Number two here, recent issues, rate hikes, buying slowdowns, 2023 challenges. I, I think just understand the way that things work as an investor. And one of those takeaways is the strategic finance is crucial. Fixed debt versus floating rate debt, essentially playing the game with a timer associated with it. Diversifying your portfolio to span four to seven years. If you're a new investor, you better get started on this. Number four, current market filters retail from sophisticated investors. Now that takeaway, this is the point where it, it filters sophisticated investors from retail investors who don't really think for themselves and unfortunately stumble upon the negative Nancy news sources out there. Again, try to have a neutral positive type of outlook and make moves. You got to make moves. Number five, use pessimism for strategic acquisition to the long-term vision. There will be opportunities, but if you're a retail investor out there, those opportunities will not be presented to you unless you have the network that you need to acquire those. Number six, loan to value ratios make even discounted deals tough. Like we're not buying yet. That's what I was mentioning. Like where the debt is, it just doesn't make deals work until the loan to values come back from 50% come back up to 65, 70%. And at this point, it just looks like development is the better path at this point. Number eight here, I think at the very least, now is a good time to read up on accredited investor banking, infinite banking strategies, and tax strategies, saving money on taxes. So if you haven't yet done the accredited investor banking e-course or book a call with the team or send bank at thewealthelevator.com to get an illustration done for you, now's a great time to focus on that part of your financial future, which of the trifecta you know, deals, infinite banking, and tax strategies is the three pieces to this. And that, again, the tax savings portion. We haven't been doing deals in 2022 or 2023 where people have been able to grab a big amount of passive losses. So that's why for investors needing passive activity losses, check out the TaxPal fund or investing in ATM equipment to get those losses. And because the ATMs are scrapped at the end of the life cycle, you don't have to recapture those passive losses like how, how you do with real estate. Especially if you're doing real estate professional status, you should look into it. If you don't know a real estate professional status or you thought you couldn't do it, maybe check out the webinar anyway or reach out to our new tax team to talk to a CPA. And oh, by the way, right now, you guys always ask for like CPA referrals in like the worst times. Don't be looking for a CPA in March, April, June, July, August. Those are like the worst times to do it. The CPAs, if they're good, they'll just blow you off because they're just too busy with their current clients. When you really should be, the dating season is right now. This is like the slowest time for CPAs. So if you guys need a referral, reach out team at thewealthelevator.com. We can get you connected over there. We'll probably do some future webinars on that topic. Number nine here, capital placement is critical for substantial wealth building. And if people ask me like, all that's happened in real estate is that this still the best place to be? And maybe I'm not as dogmatic about needs to be real estate, but I am still pretty firm. If you're under 
a few million dollars net worth. You need to get after it, man. Like you cannot just sit around and do nothing. You can invest in traditional investments, but it's going to take you a really long time to get there and you're going to pay a lot of taxes. Whether it's real estate, it needs to be some type of value add business plan. Now, value add real estate development, even ATMs to some respect, or a type of business that you can invest in as a passive investor. But you need to do those types of things to get the slightly better alpha, better returns, and the tax savings, tax benefits. Now, when you get to pass four or five million dollars, there are different types of strategies where you could de-risk your portfolio, which we're going to start to build that curriculum within the mastermind group for those more higher end investors. But if you're a million dollars to $3 million, you need to go into value add businesses to generate that type of returns to get off the ground. Oh, and by the way, save the date. You guys, for our mastermind members, and if you need to test drive the group, the retreat, we'll be doing it in Las Vegas this year. It's really expensive in Hawaii. Like you don't get much bang for your buck. So we decided to try something different. We listened to a lot of investors. Hawaii's quite far and a lot of people might leave their family at home. So it's rather difficult to get to. So Las Vegas is Las Vegas, but it's also pretty easy to get to. And they were also condensing the program before it was three days long, which again was difficult for a lot of our investors to get to. Most of you guys have families and are pretty busy at work too. We're trying the condensed version that we tried out in San Diego, which seemed to be good. We got some good feedback from it. But in January 12th to 13th, well, we're going to be sending out the info page here. I want to say around Thanksgiving time for everybody, but just wanted to send out the save the date to everybody for now. And then if you guys can help me out, a lot of the rebrand has been surrounded this new book coming out. If you guys saw the first book, this book is like maybe three times as big. And it really goes into the levels of the wealth building, which is, you know, the basement, which I think most people here have moved well beyond. Maybe they've even moved past the first floor, which is buying little rental properties, the turnkey rentals. Now, maybe you're in the second, the second rung, third rung, where you're going, you need to go into value-add businesses. And well, some of those are value-add multifamily businesses, to be particular. But you need to climb that threshold to get to the penthouse and then what's beyond there. There's There has never been a book, I think, written for like more higher net worth investors and certainly never a book that kind of outlines specific strategies for tax, legal, credit investor banking, what you're investing in, and a little bit of the mindset in there for each of these runs. We hope to add additional content and different wings, um, especially on the higher end of the wealth of above $5 million in the future. But this is all kind of my passion. Like I, I had to discover all this stuff myself and kissed a lot of frogs along the way and spent a lot of money and time. Thankfully, I didn't have kids back then. I wasn't married. I could just go all over the country and do what I needed to do. But I recognize that most of our clients just don't have the time and they just, just read it in a book. But, but yeah, it's Jacob's question there. Yeah, we actually just signed the contract with the Caesars Palace. It's a cool place. Should be a good time. We're not a we're not a big party organization, but we'll see what happens. I, I do plan on taking everybody on like the private bus on Saturday and enjoying Vegas with everybody who does come on that. Okay. So here's what we're attempting to do, folks. So 
We're going to make a, a roll call through the deals. I'm going to try and share what we can share. There are, as you guys know, just to be transparent, there are definitely some projects where we have to restructure with the bank and therefore we're under confidentiality. As you can imagine, the banks don't really want the whole world know what they what deals they're making behind the scenes and they create precedent. Unfortunately, we're not going to really give too much insight. Investors in those projects, we've definitely upped the communications. As some people say it's a little bit too much, maybe sometimes even on the weekly, bi-weekly basis. But investors in those projects are definitely up to date and Essentially, for the purposes of today's call, a lot of it has to do with investors in, if you're in floating rate debt and you went into a deal in 2021, you're in trouble because your equity more than likely is all gone, even if you're running that thing at 150% occupancy and you need to work a restructure or some kind of other way to reposition the deal. If you were in a deal prior to 2020, maybe even 2021, it grew enough roots where you're able to build, you're able to turn units over, increase the NOI to get you to a point where, as I said earlier in the presentation, you're just chilling. It's not a time to be selling. Distributions may or may have stopped, but it's just with all things out there, the calamity in the world of real estate, I think at least the way I look at myself, for speaking for myself, I'm thankful to just be in stabilization mode at this point. And you know, so we move on. Trails at Rancho Vista. Oh, yeah, that we refinanced that one a year ago. So yeah, the same story. It's like a lot of these, we got to a point where I, I don't want to say got to the backside of renovating the units. Definitely got past that first third of the units renovated. Maybe about halfway point or getting to that halfway point in terms of units renovated. And this is again where if you invest steadily into deals, the more vulnerable portions of your portfolio are the ones who are fresh because you're doing value add. But as the years go by, you, know, you get to a point where that deal is stabilized and it's a little bit stronger, more robust. So when the wind does blow or black swan event does happen, you're much more in position to just hunker down. We did sell, we sold Silverstone so that we sold that for a little win there. Some of these, so here's an aspect that I did want to talk about. So Silverstone, I think, got caught a little bit in terms of it, when things got really bad with interest rates and cap rates, it was getting up to the end of the highway, meaning that there was really no really runway for this thing to go. Meaning, yeah, you could have just held on to the property and exited, what, three years away, but are you really going to make that much? And especially when... You're running out of CapEx and things to do. So the decision was made on that one to just go ahead and sell that property. And we have another one similar situation to Harlow. But most of these other projects to a point where it's like, all right, we're not going to sell in two years anyway. And we should just just ride, ride it out, continue to do the rehabs. If I'm trying to describe it the right way, it's like Silverstone was at that point. Like it was, it had to go already. It was already out the chute. The other one was like Harlow, which is in Phoenix. And it got to a point where we had interest only on that loan. It was a great loan other than that. But once the interest only burned off, then it would have put the property into sort of a cash flow neutral standpoint, which it's just not comfortable, especially when you've done everything on the property already. 
and similar, like it's been held for a while. So it just made sense to unload that particular property. And we're getting really into the nuances here, right? Every deal has some sort of nuance where we're, this is the stuff that we do, right? We take a look at projects holistically and make strategies and it's always a, a fluid type of strategy. I appreciate we appreciate investors really not getting into the day-to-day, month-to-month and asking too many questions on there. It be- does become an administrative burden for investor relations. And it's just, remember, we're all in line in this together, right? We make money when you guys make money. And we also lose money, a lot more money when you guys lose money. We're all kind of incentivized, putting in the right position. And I think aligned in the end goal, should I go next? Brookridge. So yeah, a lot of these projects... Brookridge, we're still trying to sell. We got this offer, like I think in like March of 2023, and it's still going. The we got a lot of earnest money on this one, and we I we like the price, and we bought these three properties all in one syndication, so we package it all up in one. So the strategy there is we can sell Brookridge for we we pretty much double our money on that one, but that money goes back into augmenting the business plan on Imperial Gardens. And then maybe there's some leftover for investors there for a nice little payday now. But if you get in a sense of if you're in one of these types of deals where things are just puttering along and we're getting there and and I get the frustration that you're not getting like the refinances that you said there was going to be. But I think if anything, if I'm trying to depict like real estate went down by 25, 30% or so. There are things that needed to be happen and calls that needed to be happened to position us for security in the long term. And that may come with investors not being super, super happy, but just know that in the long term, that's what we prioritize. And especially we think that in a recession, real estate projects, especially this workforce housing will fare pretty well, but we just think that it's not really super responsible to be doling out distributions where it's unnecessary in the wake of a pretty probable 2024 recession where people's you know, securities will probably go down. I don't want to turn this report into too much negativity, although it's just, it is that state of the union, right? This quarter. But yeah, Chase Creek Apartments, we hit where we've been profitable there for a few months there. We've turned the corner and there is never a risk-free investment. But at this point, I think that one definitely is like, yeah, let's do more and more of these types of projects. Chase Creek Apartments is that new development class A. We don't really have any headaches in terms of dealing with class C or even class B tenants on that. We don't have the surprises of things breaking left and right. And we there's just there's tremendous value there. We're evaluating offers, but it appears that we're just gonna have to probably wait this one out. And if you're in a situation where you're, you're cash flow positive and you just got to ride out the wave, then all things out there, that's not a bad situation to be in, as I mentioned. Now, some of this office stuff is doing all right. You know, then again, it had very low debt on it. 50% owned the value originally on there and it was bought at a great price. But then again, when you have low leverage, you're not going to make that much money. And I think like performers on those are like, double your money in 10 years, that type of horizon. But yeah, interesting thing that's happening in office now, it's a little bit, it's different than residential uh, apartments. In office, it's the class B and C offices that are really struggling because those tenants are moving into the class A stuff because it's cleaner, it's a lot nicer. 
So it's a bit of a winner take all where that dynamic isn't going to play out fully in the residential world. Sure, maybe you might think or I might think I'd rather just pay an extra few hundred dollars and from $900 a month and get to a nice new build like Chase Creek for $1,200, $1,300. And then I can have this much nicer newer property. But again, that's me, right? Like for some people, a few hundred dollars a month means the world. That's, that's just something that they can't swing in their budget. Trying to think of like the takeaways here other than a lot of this is the big elephant in the room, which is cap rates and interest rates. The properties that kind of perform are the ones that like Huntsville, the Huntsville market has been pretty solid. I think a lot of that is just Huntsville is just, you pick the right market. That's very, I think, very forgiving. Phoenix is obviously a very cyclical market. A lot of big institutions go in there. So right now you're seeing Phoenix really hurt. And then Houston, Texas in the middle of that paradigm, I would say. But I guess, yeah, any particular question while I have people on the line? Oh, a question. Whispering Oaks. Yeah, Whispering Oaks. No problems. I was out there, what, three weeks ago? That property got picked up, I want to say 2020, if I recall. And that's exactly like the time when just and it had enough time to get to where it's at. And I don't know. There's not much... Not much to say. I don't know. Maybe bring it if you want to ask a specific question. No problems. Pet fun. Yeah, pet funds rolling. Yeah, pet fun. The way I look at it for you guys is if you guys need the upside, don't do the pet fund. Go and do the development. Essentially, the nice thing about it is you get cash flow today, right? Monthly, but you know, that's don't think like a retail investor if you don't need to be. Like retail investor wants things now, where a more sophisticated investor has the freedom to think more long-term and they will be rewarded more most times with larger equity growth at the end, whether that's a three-year time horizon, five-year time horizon, or 10-year time horizon. Hey, Lane. Hey. I was just wondering, I was going through my list here. So I was thinking, okay, how about uh, Cambridge and Courtney? Are they in trouble? Courtney? No, that's the one of the best. That's the darling of the fleet. We're going to make a killing of that one when we finally, if we want to sell it ever. Right. Yeah. I don't mind you yeah. keeping things as long as I keep getting yeah. money. I don't care. So yeah. I trust your judgment. So you do whatever. Cambridge is a tough, a tough one. Mm-hmm. You saw, you've seen what we've been doing there. It's been like the increases to rents has just been robotic month after month. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. like where the market is coming down to losing that 20, 30% with the cap rates. Well, I wouldn't say it's that much, but in Houston, but it's getting to a point where even with all this value add, we're so we're right where we start. It's so super it frustrating, right? Yeah. Is it worth keeping or not? It's it's actually we're on that one we have floating debt on it. Mm-hmm. So we have to come up with a decision. So I think I would say stay tuned for that one. But it, it's, it's frustrating because we've done everything that we've can. We've implemented the business plan. The market takes it away. So right. we haven't really officially done made a move for like restructuring or seeing our trying our hand at that. But we'll keep everybody abreast of that one. You know, I think we put that one on some people's radars for sure. But and then um, the other one that I put a lot in actually is Vermont. So that one, we had an issue with the lender originally and we resolved that. So we're a-okay for now. Very good. Thank we've been we've been doing every quarter, sending out like little updates on a quarterly basis. At least what I've tried to do, especially over the last quarter, I haven't really been having too much fun myself 
going through this kind of economy. Right. But I, I always feel like, hey, if we do the right thing, we communicate it, then I can take that to my grave. But I think we're all in this together, right? They're yeah. not to say that it's outside of our control, but is but let me see who is here. Todd Fields. Todd, you there? Yeah, I'm here, Lee. Hey, Oakhurst Fields was out there a couple of weeks ago. Nothing's built, man. If this is this was the phase one one, right? Yeah. Yeah. We sent I don't want to misspeak, but check out the last update because I get this one confused with the other pre-development deal. But we'll send something out here or shoot us a e- shoot me an email and I'll dig it up for you. But these like on some of the developments, what we'll do when the construction is just a little bit further out is we'll structure a deal where we do a phase one and phase two. Most times it's like a phase two for all intensive purposes. But Oakhurst Field, we needed to do the pre-development, right? Get the, the land platted and all that type of stuff first, which takes a while. So that's why on this particular project, I think it was just like a 12 or 13% a year thing because it's not really too much risk. But if I'm recalling, I think we may target like some, maybe summertime to do the syndication raise on the phase two for that. But a, a lot of the attitude is interest rates should go down here, maybe in that next quarter, but it should go down. So it's like, what's the rush? Like we're using that as a kind of an excuse to drag our feet a little bit. But as far as an investor, you guys get paid the longer it takes. <laughs> but it's moving. It's moving. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah thanks yeah. for all your work. Appreciate yeah. it. Larry asked if there's going to be a recession in 2024. I do think that is a recession. But again, going back to these earlier slides, housing and financial, we've already gone down the roller coaster, according to ITR already. It's everybody else. And I think this is what the stock market follows. So everybody needs to make their own decisions. But I don't have any stocks personally in if you're somebody who likes to follow these curves, although none of this is any type of financial investment advice, of course, forward-looking statements. But I think everybody needs to make their own decisions here. Think about it, guys. Like The stock market actually went up a little bit while interest rates got jacked up to 5 plus. You think that there's not going to be any fallout? Then unemployment has remained the same. GDP has gone up to 4%. It doesn't make too much sense. But then again, doesn't need to make sense, some will say. Arthur, are you there? Hey, Lane. Yeah, I'm here. Hey, how's it going? I'm here with um, Kyle, too. So then essentially the way that one played out was the Vermont deal. The bank was, we were talking about this earlier for everybody. The bank got all like zany of, hey, we got to make our entire portfolio like safe. They started to demand all this ridiculousness, like a million dollar in reserves, whatever. And then. We play the game of, it's a negotiation. So I don't remember exactly what was the trade, but that's how it plays out, right? If you guys buy the rate cap and do this and you put X amount, the dollar, 300 grand in the bank of escrows, then we're good. We'll continue to fund the, the CapEx draws and not hold up that process. Yeah. So we actually went as far as the kind of signing an agreement on that. And that was a while ago. So it's not super fresh in my head. But in like your last update, you said we might need to renegotiate again, like quarter one of 2024. Is that what we would have to renegotiate again? Is that what you're saying for 2025 or something? Or No, I don't know. Maybe send me and highlight what we said or the email. But 
my understanding is we're good for now. Okay, cool. That's good news. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Send me that email. I'll take a look at it. But yeah, it's one of those things where it's like, if we're good, let the lion sleep. Oh, for sure. Um, But that tends to happen, right? Like we've seen it happen at least several times where you get a bank who tries to push their weight around after the fact. It's messed up, but that's just part of the game, right? And that's where we get lawyers involved and we try and navigate to the situation as best as possible. And at the end of the day, it is a negotiation. Luckily, we're getting good at the type of stuff. Now, some people are asking questions on some deals that like we sent out updates and I'm, I don't want to repeat what we put into those updates out to those investors. And I'm wondering, what we see a lot is like people don't check their emails and I get it. The website is in transition now where we're getting in the process of moving over all the content from the members.simplepassivecashflow.com, which is a nightmare. I get it. I take fault of that because I made that website to the newly created on the new platform. Of course, everybody should be getting the updates through their signing portals, but we also duplicate all the reports that go out just so people have a place to go get it. So if you're somebody who's not the greatest at emails, just bookmark that webpage to get all these updates and we duplicate all the updates on that page. Do us a favor, check in on that because investor relations have been very busy on our side. We get it. Investors have a right to know we try to help you guys out. Our biggest priority is to run the assets, right? I think everybody will agree. Welcome, everybody. This is the November 2023 Office Hours where we go over new deals. You guys get to ask some questions. Want to make this as educational for everybody as possible. If anybody's got any personal questions about tax or legal, I can take a stab at it. Of course, I'm not a CPA or a lawyer, and this is obviously not personal advice. And whatever you read in the PPMs, that is what reigns supreme. But I will try my best to have people understand the latest offerings, such as the developments, the uh, the tax pile fund. I get it. It's a little confusing. So if, again, you guys want to dive into that one. We'll start off with a little bit of a tutorial on just walk you through the website a little bit. For those of you guys who have not been to the new website, we're moving over a lot of the public pages, like the tax guide. And internally, we're moving over a lot of the deal pages. If you guys are investors in particular deals, uh, what you want to do is, first, here's the navigation menu. But if you guys are already investors or already set up to work with us, you got to go to the member login page. You put in your little login information here. And it's cool. It's themed, right? You get into the lobby of the hotel and you you ride the elevator up and then you enter into this portal where you've got some news. And I think this is the the big one here, current offerings that are open for funding. They open and close, but we're going to start to instill is a bit of a waiting list here. But the Taxpal Fund, Pep Fund, Conroe, Normandy, we close out, but it's on waiting list because we when we did the raise, we asked investors to put in 50% of the capital, but that was a long time ago. And I know things change and therefore I'm counting on some people not fulfilling their commitments. So that's why we would build a, a waiting list on that one. And then of course, the Airbnb fund investor rent residences. So you guys can click on these and it'll go to the corresponding options there. But if you guys want to type some questions into the Q&A, we can go to those. I'm also going to be pulling up my questions that you guys had pre-submitted. Right, so first question here, 
I've seen people use Roth IRA, solo 401k type of funds for sometimes the wrong thing. I, and this is a bit of, you may not be, you may only have money in Roth IRA retirement accounts. You just have to understand that Roth IRA retirement accounts, solo 401ks, they're insulated. That's not really your money. You get it eventually, but it, that, that money is insulated away from you. And the bad thing about that is when you go into equity-based deals and you get passive losses, such as a multifamily value add, which we're not doing at this point in time, or you go into a development or you go into the tax bill fund and you get all these great passive losses. Remember, if you're investing through one of those retirement mechanisms, those passive losses don't flow to you personally. So I, what I've been seeing some people use or opt to use is IRA, solo for one k money for those types of mechanisms. And this is where we try to help people. We try to say, hey, why are you using these? What? Why do you like this investment? I think that's when Peter gets on the phone with people, he's always asking, not because he's nosy, but he just wants to provide any type of additional insight. Because I think some people, they come in and they just want to grab whatever with whatever money they have. And there's certainly a strategy to using non-IRA money to get the passive losses personally. And especially if you're going into the PEP fund, one of the nice things about the PEP fund is you get the cash flow now, where if you're going to be putting the PEP fund holding in your IRA, sold for 1K, that's meant to be more in the future. You're going to get the money, but you can't really touch it, right? Because it's in your retirement account. Let's see, there's a mismatch right there. Whenever, I think the things we always ask first is, hey, Mr. Investor, are you looking more for cash flow today, long-term equity growth, and do you need passive activity losses? Most investors don't really need the passive activity losses. Not much more than you're going to naturally get investing in several deals. So it may not make sense for some people to do the tax power fund or to go into an investment solely for the tax benefits. If you're doing real estate professional status, and your adjusted gross income is well over $300,000, $400,000 for marriage filed jointly, then it might make sense. And if there's any personal situations on here you guys want to go through, we certainly can. But I would say definitely have the conversation with your CPA. Most people change their CPAs once they get into this alternative investing world because most CPAs don't really understand this type of stuff. They won't do things like grouping your passive activity losses together and your passive portfolio together. They won't do things like understand real estate professional status and kind of work with you to get that checkbox. If you guys need a referral, by all, all means, reach out to us. This is the time to be dating around for a new CPA in this kind of slow period. Don't do it in February, March, April, or June, July, August. Those are like the worst times of the year. The email address is team at thewealthelevator.com and the team can get you connected there because I am not a CPA and not giving you tax advice here. If you guys want that advice, go to a CPA. But I'm more than willing to have the conversation here informally, of course. But yeah, I also see that some investors, they might be using that solo for 1K to avoid UBIT tax. UBIT tax, if you're not familiar with it, is something that you get taxed on the leverage portion of your investment. That said, more times than not, the losses that you get from that equity-based investment will, will more than cancel out that UBIT. It's always something that once investors get a little bit more sophisticated and they learn about things like UBIT and all that stuff like that, 
they focus in on it a lot. They get freaked out about it, but it always seems to be an afterthought thought at the end of the day. Again, everybody's situation is personal and it depends on where you're placing your holdings in your retirement. General thoughts is just use up your personal funds first, especially in equity-based deals so you can get the passive losses there. Then if you have to use IRAs, retirement money, then place that. For most people, and this is again really based on your own personal situation, most people probably shouldn't have these retirement accounts. To me, unless your net worth is over two, three million dollars and you're already five, ten thousand dollars a month at least, to me, your today cash flow bucket isn't overflowing and therefore you shouldn't be filling up simultaneously any type of retirement fund, which goes 180 degrees in everything what we're taught, right? But I go into more in depth into this than when we do our workshops and like when we do Las Vegas, we'll go into this whole concept of the bucket system and what you should be filling up first in terms of your personal cash flow bucket today. Then it overflows into your retirement accounts. Then it overflows into some other nonprofit potentially, something like that for more tax savings there. We'll say on a follow-up on this, I don't know if it's maybe confusing. Counterpoints, my last point. Most investors will tend to use their retirement accounts if they still have them and if they, unless they're going to just unload them and take it at income and start to invest personally. That's just the easiest. That's what I personally do. I don't really have retirement accounts. But if they have them, they typically use those accounts for more asymmetric type of plays, the higher yielding investments, such as like a development, for example, given the extended timeline before they have to access these funds. Other, In other words, because these are retirement funds, it's going to be long-term anyway. So you might as well let it roll. Although the PEP fund offers great cash flow today, you can't use it if it's in a retirement account, solo 401k, self-directed IRA, whatever. You can see where kind of the clash there. That said, you can do whatever you guys want. I'm just making you guys aware of these types of things. Um, if you're somebody who's, I, I think a common thing I see is like people get a little bit bogged down with the tax implications. Sometimes it's remember to note that don't let the tax tail wake the dog. If you've got the money and you've only got it in your personal holdings, or if you only got it in your retirement holdings and you like the investment, then that's some will say, just go after the investment and figure out the rest later. I think a lot of people, there's one type of investor out there that they, these are typically some of the, the older investors that may have a million dollars plus in their retirement accounts because they spent two, three decades doing it the traditional way and they don't really have any money personally, those are the kind of the difficult situations where, you know, when we look at that, you're just probably just going to have to take money out of the IRA and take it as income and take it out or invest it through those retirement account mechanisms for the long term. But then the problem there is you don't get to enjoy it today, which is, again, the whole flaw behind the retirement account. So the following couple of questions are about the tax health fund. So if Little background tax pile fund if you're new to it. We're investing in a pool of ATM machines, and these ATM machines are going to get us revenue from the people use the ATMs, they get the fees, and there's a whole bunch of other services. A lot of people say, I don't use an ATM, but it caters towards the bottom third population. 
And what I would urge you is to take a look at, I think it's like an hour, half long webinar going through the business plan on there. It's at thewealthelevator.com slash ATM is where you can find it. And then you got to log in, of course. But investor question here is, what are the current number of ATMs and the number of states and the exact count, well, not exact count, but as of September, 2023, there are about 2,400 active ATMs in the portfolio. And then we expect to add maybe another thousand or so this next month. And where are they located? Pennsylvania, Texas, Florida, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Louisiana, Ohio, Georgia. So a lot of those more Eastern side of the, the country. And of course that can change. And then the next question here is how does the K1 reporting on multiple states? So when you invest, you'll get a K1 package. So the CPA will put it all together and, and submit it out to investors. They'll get a federal K-1 and then you should get a K-1 for each state in the fund that has the ATM's place. So again, I think this is where a lot of those basic CPAs give a lot of clients trouble. They get inundated by these K-1s. I give my CPA like almost 100 K-1s a year and they don't really care. They file in all these states and you just have to find a cost-effective one. That's why we've located and searched for the ones that we recommend to people. But yes, some of the CPAs really gouge people. And it's quite frankly, they just don't want to do it. It's They're not comfortable with it and they just don't want to do it. So they charge you guys an arm and a leg. You go to somebody that doesn't want to work on your Mercedes and they're like, you're like, how much is an oil change? And they're like, $1,000. And I think everybody knows in that case, it's, yeah, okay, I get it. You don't want to work on my car, right? Or you don't like me or some one of the two. But in a way, that's kind of how the CPA world works or professional services work in general. I, I think investors can get caught in that at the end of times. And that's why now is the time to be asked in the CPA those types of questions. Hey, I'm in a bunch of these syndicated deals. I'm going to get the K-1s from the federally and potentially these states. How does that work? How do you guys charge me? Are you guys charging me per hour, which is the way it should be? Or are you billing me by all these kind of packages that I mean, you may only work three, four hours on my whole thing, but you're going to charge me on this package and that package and the state package, et cetera. Just something for investors to move. I mean, you want to ask your question? I think it's around to like, hey, how is it as, as an investor, I'm able to verify that we're actually, or the operator is actually buying these ATMs. Is that kind of what you're saying in terms of validate? Yeah, that's correct. In case of real estate, you can go to a county site or validate the purchase, but I'm not sure how do we validate this stuff in case of ATMs. In this case, we're working more in the realm of the security. And if there's any kind of foul play, that's a big no-no. It's not like a little JV agreement. It's because it we'll find like a stock in a way. You verify that AD&T is connecting all these customers and building this network. No, obviously. And it is on that spectrum. Got it. So you're, this is more of a bet on the management. And in this case, I'm not in the role of the operator. I'm in the role oh. of the fund manager. So I'm on your seat too, right? So if there's any type of issues, I'm the one that kind of rallies the troops. Because this is a side note. Like I've seen deals go sideways personally as an LP a handful of times. Obviously, it's always hard to lose money, especially when it's counterparty risk. When I first started to do this business, you guys don't realize how difficult it is out there and how much shysters there are. 
And I kissed a lot of frogs personally. And that's always been one of my missions. Let's just make it a little bit easier for people. And so they, at least they don't take it and buy a bunch of these like internet shysters. It is difficult out there. And with real estate, you are able to somewhat verify, hey, did this LLC buy this property? But we're now getting more on that spectrum of a lot of this stuff is not very verifiable from your computer at home. And it's on that spectrum of buying a publicly traded company and very similar to its private equity, right? So if you're not comfortable with that, maybe you should go back to traditional investments. But we know what's going to happen on that side of the house. But that's where the due diligence that kind of went in here is like, we have a lot of investors that have been doing this in the past. I've known the operator since 2016 when I got into this stuff. But if there's any type of problem, I'm the one who fights on everybody's behalf. It's It really doesn't matter if you invest through our group or go direct. But if you go direct, don't ask me for any help. You're on your own, buddy. Got it. And, and based on the due diligence, I know the operator has been operating for quite some time. And based on your due diligence, you feel com- completely comfortable with the ATMs. Uh, you never, there is never risk-free investment. You never know. Even with buying stock from AT&T, you never know, right? But with pretty high confidence, I'm putting my name on it and also going in too, right? Super vague answer, but I've been in this business long enough to not give a 100% guarantee, right? If you want that, you can go to all these other jokers out there that have been doing less than quarter million dollars at deals. That said, I think, The thing that pushed me over the edge when I first started to do this was like, you know what? These are like legitimate businesses, not something like how the heck is a stock price created, right? Or moving up and down. What's that based off of? It's not, it's certainly not based off profit and loss statements, what the company actually makes. Whereas this stuff is a lot more, you can see where the rubber meets the road. But Yeah, in in this role, there's like a little bit of safety with the group, right? Because like I've seen like going back to what I was mentioning, like where deals go south or an operator goes rogue. um, I've seen it where first off, like if you're an LP in that situation, you're on your own. And it's like to do any kind of litigation is like going to cost an arm and a leg. More importantly, it's going to take a lot of time and effort where in a way that's what I've signed up on or you guys, right? If there's any kind of issue, that's where I spend my time, bandwidth and money to fight it on everybody's behalf. Because I want to protect my reputation as that fund manager here. But I think that's the difficult thing about being an individual LP, right? If there's any fallout and which emphasizes working with good, honest people, you can't guarantee what happens in the outcome. And we've seen that happen in 2021, people buying at the peak, right? And we've had a certainly discount in properties and commercial real estate. You watched the last quarterly report. But what I, my big thing as an investor is if we can eliminate the counterparty risks, that's a big thing. And to me, the big part of that is your network. That's why people join the family office group. They meet real other passive investors for more long-term network. But yeah, if you if you come up with something better, let me know. I'm always, that's the whole point of continuing to learn and trying to find better ways to do it. But you know, I, I think that like the stopgap for this one is not anybody can be get involved with the ACH system and they're audited and checked on their side. Yeah, yeah. I, I 
believe there is a segment of population that keep on using ATMs. I was just focused on the how do you validate them? That 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 was my question, which as you answered was more on the integrity of the operator. Yeah, so what do you mean by like validate and not the key? Uh, when I'm saying validate, if you're buying a real estate, you can validate that by going to county or somewhere and validate that purchase has been done by the LLC or the fund. In case of ATMs, there is no such validation, right? I can't go somewhere and validate that this ATM has been purchased by this person. Does that make sense? No, yeah, you can't do that because it's all private, right? Yeah. Although something I've been doing lately because it like, it's just, I think maybe one of the reasons I do what I do, right? I'm an entrepreneur. I like to see the business and feel a part mm-hmm. of it. I was at like the pumpkin patch like the other week with my family. And then it's always like a pop-up event and they have these, they have the ATM machine there. Yeah, I go look on the side or in the back of the ATM and I look up the management company and then start Googling and it's, you start to realize there's a big network of this type of stuff. And it's mostly a handful of operators do the majority of the ATMs, right? Because they need to get a scalable type of operation going. But maybe that was what you're looking for to some extent or? Yes, they claim themselves to be the top four operator, right? So there should be some data to validate that. So that's what I was. Yeah. Another question that somebody submitted, what is the tangible value of the merchant location agreements and how can these agreements serve as the collateral for the capital invested in case the value of the ATM machines diminish in case the business plan does not play out and there's a need to recapture the value of the principal invested? So similar like, in real estate, you buy a piece of property, it's a hard asset, and say you run low on cash flow, the operation doesn't work, but there's some tangible value there that you can salvage and get back. That's always been the reason why a lot of people do real estate, for example. Quite the opposite is say you have like a member's website and you have some kind of e-commerce store where you're selling very cheap or virtual products. In that case, there is really no salvage value. Right? A lot of that inventory is really not worth anything. In this case, these ATM machines are halfway along the spectrum between real estate and what I just mentioned, because it is a hard, tangible asset, the ATM machines. Should the worst case play out and you just have to salvage the ATMs, this data point is taken, assuming you've got like a ATM that's half used where there's like a few years of remaining life on it. And the average value is like 20 grand. Given this value and the contract also has value on it too, right? The contract is, hey, we're be in your location for X amount of time. Now there is value to that too, although virtual of course, right? But that can be traded to a smaller player within the space. But on average, yeah, 20 grand is a kind of a good ballpark, which is around like maybe half of the investment there. ATM machines, they're not going to be going around anytime soon. They have a lifespan of about seven years anyways. It's not a long-term investment anyway. And I think that's where recouping capital very quickly over the first four years is a big part of the security. And it, it is counterintuitive than what we're taught, where we're taught to invest in things that are around forever, whereas this one's a little bit different. And I just want to point out, people need to intellectually wrap their head around it. Oh, thanks for asking this question. So so the question here for the ATM fund, since there is no return of capital at the end, how would you say, how would you talk to your CPA 
that we can explain what is return of capital and what is the upside passive income spread over seven years? Or is it first four years of all return of capital and three years all passive income? Ooh, yeah, it's a technical question. What I would first say is I think if you're needing to coach your CPA on this, I think you need a new CPA, first of all. What this is something that I think confuses a lot of people, especially CPAs. What I would suggest first is say, hey, this is what the big picture looks like in the seven-year period. We're going to get these types of, I think, what, 24% pref, and that's going to carry out, and it's going to be considered passive income because it's deriving off of the investment, the income. Now, whether it's return of capital, return on capital, really doesn't make too much sense for the CPA. That's more for you and us talking informally about the investment as a whole in the way I tell investors is, hey, sure, it's a 24% pref, but the way you really got to look at it is like take it on the seven-year time horizon. Say the the returns are 24 or 25% times seven. Let me just do that. 24 times seven, that's 170% over the seven years. So any good investor will do, all right, what's my investment per year. So you go like that 175 divided by seven, and it's that 25%. But then again, you have to back out that return of capital, which was your initial investment, because you're not recouping that at the end. So in reality, it was a 75% return on investment in that seven-year period. So the math that you need to do is 75 divided by seven, and that's about 10% a year. And that's how you look at it from an investor. But from how the CPA looks at tax perspective, it's 24.8% a year. passive. I don't know if I did a good job at that. Do you want to come off mute and clarify? Maybe I confused you even more. That one. No, that was helpful. Thank you. Yeah. I asked the same question initially too, when I was looking at this, I was like, all right, those first four years, is that going to be ordinary income, passive income? And answer I got. And of course, everybody needs to do their own due diligence, right? And talk to their own CPA. But what my understanding is that is passive income. Why? Because it's deriving off of the income of the investment and it's more of a long-term hold. So that's good. That, that means it comes out as this good color of money of passive income. And because you're getting all this losses in the beginning, these passive losses, you should be able to use those losses to offset passive income coming from the investment. So in a way, this investment takes care of itself, cleans its own income in a way. But then after the four years, now you're operating at a surplus, which is a good thing. That's what you want. But even when it does come and exceed the losses that you got from the investment, it is still coming out as passive income. So you either need to go search the universe in four years for other passive losses sources, such as real estate, or maybe some people, what they'll do is they'll go into something like this and then two years from now or or four years from now, do another tranche. So that's another idea some people will do just to keep the good times rolling. You have to recapture all the losses that you get. It helps you in the hold period. And that's really all that the game of tax is all about. But in this case, is because the ATM machines are scrapped and unlike real estate, you don't really have to recapture that 
that depreciation on your sites in a way that's the the game changer right it's you're getting passive losses but you don't really need to recapture it at the end or reabsorb the income in a way at that of the asset what else do you guys have up there we talked a lot about this tax alpha it is the end of the year it's the time when people people are certainly going to be more mindful of taxes Next question here on the TaxPal fund. Do you trade a machine? Not quite understanding that question. Gustin, do you want to clarify your question there? Yes, sir. Yeah. Are you a vendor for ATMs? Do you take investments for that? Yeah. Oh, I, yeah. I see your niche. I, 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 I'm strictly like multifamily unit kind of guy, but I didn't realize that you also participate in ATMs. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think for a while there, I went really deep into apartments and real estate in general. Right now, it's just very difficult to make deals even pencil on the real estate side because interest rates are high. And even if properties are discounted 30%, because of the loan to values are much, much lower. Used to be you'd be able to get 70% loan to value. Now it's 50%. I have to come with so much more money to the table. So we haven't really been buying multifamily value add projects. When the interest rates started to go up, I think that was June of 2022. And part of that was investors, they like real estate because they have the bonus depreciation, especially in that first year. But some investors needed that. And it's been a dry spell for over a year on depreciation. So we're searching for an option for people who need that. And that's where the tax pal fund came about. At the end of the day, I think for investors under a few million dollars net worth, you have to get after it, right? You have to get your net worth over to that in-game level of, of three, four, five million net worth. And then you can change your portfolio from there. But to me, to use the construct of the new book, right? The Wealth Elevator, when you're on that kind of threshold, you have to be going into value-add businesses. And that value-add business, and I'm being very precise here with this, it can be multifamily real estate. It can be developments. And it can be buying a pizza franchise or a boba tea shop, or it can be ATMs. There needs to be some kind of business that you're investing in that's not traditional investments where there's so many middlemen. So it needs to be more direct to the source and it needs to be like a improving value-adding business or ones that cash flow like crazy. And part of that is getting out of your comfort zone and getting to more working in less traditional investments. But yeah, that's the backstory of it. You seem new to the group. What I would shoot us an email at team at thewealthelevator.com and we'll get you onboarded and we'll send you that link. A lot of it is you need to have a, a login and we need to verify you as an investor okay. first. Let's start there. Let's correspond via email. But yeah, I think that's the whole kind of mission behind the group, right? That maybe I lost sight of a little bit going at one point, I thought that we were a real estate company and in a one way we were, but I lost sight of what are we as a company? We, to me, it's like to help people follow the role that I did through a network and all kinds of different offerings, different type of investments that kind of fit the criteria. And people need to diversify anyway. And I had a big aha moment five months ago. I was talking with my business mastermind. Anybody remembers Kodak, the picture company, or they made the film. Kodak really geeked out about, obviously, the film, right, to develop photos. These guys, these jokers actually had the patent on the digital film 
or the digital camera stuff, but they never progressed that. And obviously, we all know the story of Kodak. They just became obsolete. They thought that their business, their mission was to progress the technology of this film. But in reality, or the way I saw it, their mission was to create the memories, the end goal for their customers. In the same way I saw that as self-reflection on myself, I was like, what's the goal, right? Is the goal to get people into multifamily real estate or is the real goal to help people get to financial freedom through, and I get back to it, is the trifecta, right? The deals where you get slightly better alpha and you get tax benefits to then play all these tax games that the wealthy play and then do a little bit of credit investor banking and that, that trifecta, the mechanism behind the real mission of getting people financially quicker to where they need to be. But that's a little bit of realization that kind of I've personally had over this past year. But, but yeah, we'll get you, shoot us an email, we'll, we'll get you onboarded there. And right now the website is in transition to the new newer looking ones. I would just say if you had any questions, feel free to just reach out to the team via email. Um, okay, we'll do. Thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, we. some of you guys text us. I'll say, please don't text us because texts get lost. Yeah, emails are the best way. We work as a team here and we try to get everybody's questions answered. And email just is the easiest way for us to collate those types of the correspondences. Um, but we also have a phone number. So if you're old school and you pick up the phone in a way that I'm like that, to me, if I have to ask more than three questions. I'm picking up the phone, getting an answer myself. But that's just how I do business. One quick question. Do you have, are there any opportunities for active W2 income people? I know these are all for passive folks. I, I know you mentioned about oil and gas pass and that you don't like that industry, etc. Besides oil and gas, any other opportunities out there from tax perspective for active folks? Yeah, so let me reiterate the, the question just so we don't lose anybody, if you don't mind. I guess what the, the question is, say I have a W-2 day job or 1099s and I just have a boatload of ordinary income, what can people do, right? Because all this stuff that we're talking about here is using passive losses that you may get from the tax file fund or for real estate to go and knock out your passive income coming from your investments, there is a line here. You, you can't use passive losses to knock out your ordinary income unless you have real estate professional status there. But clear on that, that'll be right. That's, yeah, that's a good summary. You need, let me ask you the question, right? Because this is, this is now what I enjoy, right? Like the technician, the engineer in me, it's like, all right, let's see what we can do here, right? Can you, mm -hmm. you ever consider real estate professional status or are you able to make that work? Or why not? I guess let's ask it from that perspective. I would probably have to increase the amount of income that I'm going to get from passive sources. And that's the tipping point, right? When that income increases, definitely, yes, I would want to look into that real estate professional status. But at this point, my income is more on the active side rather than the yeah, passive. Yeah, so, so that's exactly my point, right? So real estate professional status now is it removes this red line, this wall. So you use the passive losses to knock out the ordinary income, which you have. Okay. And for the real estate professional status, it's the hours, right? Or some more than that? Generally speaking, and this is where you need to talk to a good CPA, either you or your spouse needs to qualify and they need to not have like a full-time job, number one. And there's the other 
part is like this, you need to have about 750 hours of active participation in your portfolio. And that is what I see wide ranges of interpretation on that. The way I teach it is, you know, I'm not a CPA, right? So I'm not Uh the one signing off on this stuff, but I see, you know, a lot of people doing all kinds of things. And that's a conversation that you need to have with your CPA. Now you have to ask if it's worth it enough. So for people who, let's go to the tax bracket and I don't expect you to answer this kind of somewhat of a private form, no, public form, right? This is but really good discussion. This is really good discussion. A lot of, if you're under this threshold of $364,000 as a married file jointly, this is AGI, adjusted gross income, you don't pay that much taxes. So I would not freak out about real estate professional mm-hmm. status. Certainly if you're above that, yeah, you better be figuring this stuff out. If you're a doctor that makes or somebody making over three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars by yourself, you need to be thinking about this stuff and sign up for a paid console. This is such super worthwhile because if you're able to get rep status from your CPA, now you're gonna able to unlock using these passive losses. Now and now you're seeing why people dive into the tax pile fund. They get the passive losses to now offset not only their passive income, but drive their high ordinary income down. So that's maybe I should have started there first, right? If you're under $350,000 EGI, don't worry about it. It's a waste of time. It's not worth the brain damage because the reasoning behind that is you're not in the high tax brackets anyway. So it doesn't really matter. But if you're in its higher tax brackets, yeah, you better be trying to figure something out. And I apologize if I'm being very strong worded, but I think a lot of people need to be woken up who are in this category that they should do something and they can do something. Unfortunately, everybody lives on their little boxes on the internet and only maybe 10% of the investors join the family office group to actually get around the community of people doing this type of stuff. But that's where I, I need to push people on like seeing the strategies, and seeing what's possible out there. And then the analogy is, the real estate professional status is like a bow and arrow set where the rep status is like the bow. You have the bow, but you need arrows and the arrows are the passive losses that you get from investment, right? Investments. That's really helpful. So one quick question. If you are investing in alternative investments, like for example, this ATM and other stuff, can you use those hours and the amount you spend on that on rep status? Good question. I'm not going to answer that. That's between you and your CPA. Okay, got it. And I see CPAs all over on that response. But do keep in mind, I would say 95% of these guys don't understand and don't do it themselves. And you know what the question, the answer is going to be to most of these questions, right? No. Is there anything equivalent of rep status in the alternative investment space? No, rep status is one of those, I, I call it a loophole. Because originally it was put there and you didn't have all these kind of restrictions. All the doctors would just get rep status and they would just open the floodgates for this stuff. And so since then they put these extra restrictions in place. Got it. I know you, you shared about oil and gas well and your thoughts about that, but just wanted to check. Have you ever heard about salt water disposable wells? There's so many of those jokers. I have no clue of all those guys out there. Got it. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to stamp my name on anybody. Like, <laughs> I don't have Makes to. Sense. Makes sense. Yeah, I would say join the family office group. That's the only place you're going to get stuff like that. 
If not, maybe somebody's so inclined to go on the Facebook operator world and just click on all those, hey, invest here, invest there, invest with me. Jeez. That's, yeah, I, I, I asked about what are disposable wells. I think that the operator totally agree of what your thoughts on the operators. But I think from the business model perspective, I saw the big difference. In an oil and gas well, there there is a probability, even though it's low, that you could end up in a dry well. In a salt water disposal well, they're just disposing of salt water. And I mean, at least based on the webinar, they were saying that it would run for 20, 25 years. Obviously, the returns are not as great as an oil and gas well, but but the risk of drive looks like it's off of the table in case of salt water disposed glass. Yeah. It depends on what kind of investor you are, right? The, as you alluded to, the bad part of that is that you returns your upside isn't that high. So it's like the ATM machines and I make comparisons. And this is what I like about investing. They're all similar in a way. They're totally different asset classes, but the plays, the bets are, are similar. So that the ATMs in this particular fund are all more like blue chip type of ATM contracts and locations, meaning that it's in your typical places where you have pre-existing track record run rates. Uh, It's similar to, it sounds that saltwater thing. I've heard about it before, but it's nothing. I don't think, I'm not super excited about it, but the investment thesis is like, hey, this is a relatively lower risk, more, More. more hit rate, right? Maybe we don't get a gusher here, but if that's the kind of or investor you're looking for, then, hey, this is that type or asset class world. So in the ATM machines, this particular fund is similar to that investment prospectus where it's like, hey, we're not shooting for the moon. And shooting for the moon in, in terms of ATM machines would be like some of the ATM machines are like in pop-up locations or unverified locations where it could be a gusher. It could be a complete dud, right? Nobody uses the damn thing. And those are obviously cheaper on face value, but could be a more of an asymmetric play. Whereas like in the oil and gas world, that's normally where a lot of traditionally 10, 20 years ago, where investors would go into these wildcat type of arrangements. And if, if you've heard the word wildcat, maybe you've heard it from the football term, but it really originated from wildcat drilling, meaning it's a cowboy wild ass guess if we're going to hit any oil. I'm sure we have a geologist that maybe did some studies, but you don't know it's it's a cookie well, business. Well, I'll tell you one thing. None of the operators today use the word wildcat. Everyone says it's an offset or PUD or PDP, right? Most of the I think probably everybody is now aware of wildcat. That's why the operators are not using that word at all. Maybe they're because they're going for retail investors. Retail investors are very skittish and they don't have the fortitude to go for wildcat asymmetric plays. And that's the way they're marketing the deal. Got it. I, I, I don't know too much about like my understanding on you get better tax benefits on the wildcat type of formations because that's what the government wants to incentivize. Now, I don't know how it plays out in real life in taxes, but that was my sort of understanding. You may want to look more into it. if you. To me, you don't play around with oil and gas investments unless you make over $500,000 a year ordinary income. It's just silly, I think. For a bunch of risk and counterpart risk you're taking on. But but you see how they're playing to unsophisticated investors out there where we have a safe play, a verified, and it's as we call it a zinger in the business. A marketing term is zinger, where you've got this kind of buzzword, like saltwater dispensary, and it's like this new tech 
And it's just some marketing tactic too. Yeah, I, I think it's, I got to admit it's fun, right? But to me, I think what do it maybe when your net worth is four or five mil plus and you're just looking for fun things. But at that point, some investors will start to invest more philanthropically or environmental focus type of stuff. And they look down upon oil and gas investments, even though that's what the world runs on, right? These oil-based things. The people really don't like those oil and gas investments. Thanks, man. That was helpful. Yeah, I dug into a little bit. I did a, a private tour out there myself, learned about it. And I really realized what a cowboy type of operation it was. And I just didn't get a good feeling. And, and for somebody who does like PPMs all day long, I was like, oh, this is this a cut and paste document that y'all use. And I did it, right? But that's where I know I may never see that money again. And I just did it just to see what the IDC tax benefits were for myself. But good luck. I say, don't do it if your AGI is less than 500 grand. And I just don't see like the, there's no tax benefits for you. Oh, I guess one thing, maybe it's just an idea. I don't know if you've heard me talk about this before. You move through the journey, right, of financial independence and the financial journey. And part of that is in the beginning. And it sounds like you're in the stage. You have high ordinary income. You're this gas guzzling truck right here. And it's I call this high friction mode where you're making a lot. You're paying a lot in taxes because you've got ordinary income. And most cases, it's the dual income. I don't know if in your case, is it are you guys both making, you and your spouse, or I don't know if you're single, you guys both making similar amounts of money. Is that kind of the way it works? Or Anyway, in most cases, it's like you got husband making 200 grand and spouse making 200 grand, 150 grand. There's a combined effort. In that case, it's tough because sure, if one person goes rep status and quits their job, of course, quality of life will go way up. But that net amount that you have at the end of the year to invest, which is really the name of the game on this, you, you goes way down. So a lot of people, they have to just, unless you make a phenomenal salary, you, people have to work at it, work making a lot of ordinary income and cannot do real estate professional status because they work full-time jobs. And at that, it's you're just going to have to make a lot of ordinary income. But at some point, and it's different for everybody, and this is where it gets really into personal finance, you start to go into Prius mode where it's half electric, half hybrid mode. And how that relates to people here in terms of money, it's portion of it is passive income where you use tax benefits that you get from the tax bill fund and you offset that passive income or other passive investments. And the percentage of your ordinary income or from your traditional investments, which is ordinary income, starts to go down over time. Even if your salaries go up, but that's the, the transition. Now, at some point when you get to your in-game number, whether that's two and a half million, five million, it's different for everybody. That's when you go Tesla full electric mode and the majority of your income is passive income. And you start to realize that maybe your top line income, ordinary plus passive is a lot lower, but if it's 100% passive income and you're able to offset that completely, you may net more. At the end of the day, that's that's where you want to get to in the end game zone. But most people, unless you're independently wealthy and your parents gave you a boatload of money, have to start out in this high friction gas guzzling truck. But Dom, I don't know if that kind of identifies some of those portions, but that kind of plays into 
implementing rep status or not. Yeah, that was very helpful. And I yeah. think the clear, your comment regarding if you are anywhere below whatever, 350, 400, didn't even make sense. Yeah, that was very helpful. Yeah. And these are like the people that I think struggle the most through this and we try to help the most and they're often the most new to this stuff is like people in this threshold, right? But these are the people that need to do this stuff the most. This is the difficult part, but it just takes time. Oh, so question is why developments than multifamily value add? So multifamily value add, now I'll categorize that specifically as you're in a business plan where you're trying to you have a nice 1980s property and you're trying to put a little bit of appliances, paint, playground equipment, throwing in a very small portion of money into each unit, call it 6,000 bucks. Whereas development is obviously you're building something from the ground up a heck of a lot more than $6,000 of construction per unit, more in the scope of $150,000, $200,000 of construction per unit because you're building it up from scratch. And that's what's the issue with multifamily value add, we're just trying to put a little lipstick on the pig, is you're trying to increase the net operating income by maybe 20% over a four or five year period. And what it looks like on a month to month basis is a handful of the units come up for a renewal, you get in there, you do a little rehab, and then you bump the rents up a hundred, couple hundred bucks. And of course, you're also trying to drive expenses down a little bit. Oftentimes expenses do increase because you're increasing the level of services for the tenants, but that delta between the the income and the expenses should increase. But the problem occurs in like a black swan event where you have the property value going down by 30% and your 20% net operating income vastly gets trumped by the market appreciation going out. And if this is in terms of the interest rates, it hasn't been like this in 40 years and it's never gone up this quick as history, but you're seeing where that's a downside of multifamily value add where we've been switching more in 2022, more towards ground up development as a means to diversify the holdings and take, follow the breadcrumbs of more institutional operators. Why is it that large institutions don't buy class C properties, class B properties, it is a little bit unpredictable with a very difficult tenant base. And as much as the diligence you do and you send in the inspectors and the construction people, there's always stuff that breaks and it just makes that difficult. So I do think like certain things work in different points of the market cycle. Unfortunately, you know, you as an investor or myself included never know when the ups and downs are. More times than not, it's a false top. And, you know, you if you sit out, you miss out on the upside. That's where you have to diversify as an investor. But right now, the multifamily value add projects just don't work because even if I'm buying a property at a nice discount, 30%, if I got to come to the table with a lot more down payment, just not going to make my numbers work to get the needed safety net that I need. And therefore, I think the developments just have more margin for error is the big thing or or margin for the market to go one way or or the other. That's it. I think the problem with developments is not anybody can do it. So you need to have the big part of it is getting the financing and the lenders require a proven track record to get a loan. Much more scrutinizing than some people who've done real estate for a while can just go get a loan for a 100, 200 unit apartment. For development, those requirements are a lot more stringent. I see 
barriers like that is a good thing, that if you can get past that barrier to entry, it's a lot less competitive. And maybe similarly, what we're talking about just a little while ago, it's not that hard for somebody to just get a motor and a pump and start to drill for oil. It is a kind of a relatively low barrier to entry. And that's what one of my takeaways from heading out into the oil fields of Northern Texas. And it is simple for people just to get into the business. And to some respect, maybe it is good to be in businesses where it is somewhat institutional and untouchable. And in a way, ATM machines are like that. You can have small mom and pop operators who own an ATM machine or a dozen or a couple dozen. But I think the way that I've chosen to play the angle is more on institutional level. Several thousand ATMs in a portfolio. And one quick question. I recently saw a investment proposal where investment is pretty simple. It's triple net real estate stuff, primarily gas stations to 7-Eleven, et cetera, SQR. The model is good, but the way they were pitching is they were saying that they're going to make everybody a general partner and they can claim it as active losses, which was really surprising. I've never seen that. That's the way they do it for oil and gas. They put you as a general partner for the first year. And they, they, you, then you get the tax benefits and then they swap you off. This is for a real estate play, gas station. Uh, it's not or drilling or oil and gas. Yeah, yeah. That's I've seen it done that way too. But to me, as an LP, if I was an LP, I'd be like, heck no, I don't want. Yeah, I felt it was definitely crossing the line because technically speaking, I'm just being an LP, but they're saying we're going to put you as GP. And when I asked the question, the explanation that was given to me was we're going to keep you as a promoter. You would be promoting a fund or probably you that you're promoting the fund and Letting others know the fund. But I still don't see the benefit to, or to you, why you would need to do it. So like in oil and gas deals, it is specifically spelled out in that world. And of course, I'm not a CPA, but this is my understanding of it. In oil and gas world, like you, you cannot absorb those losses to go and attack your ordinary income unless you are a general partner of that deal. So that's why that's a common practice in that world. But man, is that a huge liability because now you're engulfing all this. You're working with oil, right? There's a huge environmental liability with that in addition to people's lives all the time. Where Totally with oil and gas. But I think one that I was referring to is a fund that's investing in gas stations. They're buying triple net leases gas stations. They're not drilling oil and gas. But the way they were pitching you in the fund, they're going to make you a GP. And as they're making you a GP, they're saying that you can take the passive losses and offset it against an active income. And the criteria they're saying is because you're a GP, you can do that. I don't think that works. But of course, talk to your CPA, right? Because at the end of the day, your CPA is the one who's going to make the call on that. I think yeah. that's a little silly, even if I need, really needed those asset losses to go after my ordinary, I would look to be doing rep status and then a little bit of tax pal fund or two different types of liability, I guess what I'm describing here. And of course, not a CPA, right? I'm, this is my opinion of it. Like I, I would rather just take the chance on conservation easements and take the IRS risk than to take, in this case, it works, but you're taking on the legal liability litigation risk. I, if you're comparing, it's a trade-off, right? If you're mm -hmm. comparing the two, I would much rather take my chances 
with a conservation easement and with the IRS risks there than to now put my ass on the line in terms of liability. Things happen all the time at these properties. People always try to hit up for the insurance and with these frivolous lawsuits. It just goes away because we have lawyers, but it's just not worth it. Especially for somebody who has several million dollars to lose. That always comes into play too. Like you got, if you got a less than a million bucks, what do you got to lose? But yeah, it's, I, I admit that's clever, right? But you're seeing how I'm like, hey, that's, what are we doing here, guys? Like trying to save $5,000 on taxes at the end of the day for 10 grand, or even if it's 40, 50 grand, but now you're bringing in a lot more risk into the equation. Again, like what's the worst can happen? Now something happens at one of these gas stations, there's a murder and you have a celebrity attorney now coming after your guys. That's a gold mine for the attorney to have all these GP suckers on this roster to go after. I don't know. Just something to think about, right? I may or may not be right on this, but that's just my viewpoint. And that's where I think that's why you got to get around the community of other investors thinking about this. And even though I may be wrong, at least I can inspire some kind of other viewpoint or thinking on your side to look at this stuff. It's always nice to hear diverse perspectives. And as you mentioned, what exactly is the risk that you're taking in the long term for a short term benefit? And is it worth it? Yeah. And, and I think this is an interesting conversation. If I, I don't gamble, I don't really do Las Vegas or card games and stuff like that. But if I did, if I was to, to do sports betting, I would probably, I would bet more on asymmetric plays. Like I would bet on the underdog, but I want odds, right? Like I like the Lakers and I don't think that they're top five favorites. So I may bet on them because I enjoy it, of course, for the fun. But if they do win, I get outsized return. So going back to your whole saltwater thing as the more kind of safer play, that could be just get nothing because it's kind of part of your risk takes you out. But I think good investors, they're patient and they understand when there is an opportunity and they pounce on it. Where uncertain newer investors, retail investors, what they typically go after is let me just invest in things that are marketed as like that safer place. So you can see the angle that I was saying where like people like the tax pile fund, right? If you need tax benefits, you're all in. You're, you pounce, right? You confidently move in. And I think that's what an investor needs to understand. What is their buy box and how do things compare with other alternatives out there? And when something pops in, you don't ask questions. You just, right, just go. And you already have a network already to that being counterparty risks. Uh, but for what I notice with even higher level investors, they start to change their portfolio because they can, because it's a lot bigger. You're talking $10 net worth. And when they start to play in these types of worlds, they're actually going more towards the asymmetric play. So if you're talking like oil and gas deals, they're going to go more into the wildcat formation. Just use that as an example, because we're talking about it, right? But in the real estate world, they're going to go more into the ground up development. If not, it's not worth their time. They want to 3X their money, 4X, 5X. And I think this is where now I start to see the appeal for like venture capital where, yeah, you lose your money 90, 95% of the time or more, but on the winners, you make 10, 20x that, that more than account for the losers. But I think this is a nuance I'm seeing with the wealth elevator and newer investors coming through who are under five, $10 million net worth. They just can't, 
they cannot sustain any type of loss and therefore they have to play the game a lot safer, which in turn is going to take a lot longer to where they need to get to. But it all makes sense if you think about it. But there is a sort of a transition long term to going to more riskier stuff with a smaller portion of their network. But you can only do that when your network is gets you get to more your end game level, meaning when you care less, you, you got the basis covered. But yeah, now that I've thoroughly confused people, I think we'll end it right there. Thank you all for coming. I'll see you guys next month. Bye. This presentation includes forward-looking statements, all statements other than statements of historical facts included in this document, including without limitation statements regarding the future financial position, target or projected investment returns, business strategy, budgets, and projected costs of the partnership and plans, objectives of the partnership for further operations or forward-looking statements. In addition, forward-looking statements generally can be identified by the use of forward-looking terminology as may, will, expect, intend, forecast, a projected estimate, anticipate, believe, continue, or negative uses there or variations thereon or similar terms. You guys can read the rest in your own free time. The proceeding is not tax, legal, or investment advice, nor an offer to sell securities or investment products. Always make informed decisions with professional guidance. Get educated and surround yourself with a community at thewealthelevator.com slash club. 